In this retreat and in our practice together, we're seeking to engage with what it means to live in the world as it is, and to learn and see and understand for ourselves what really serves our well-being, what serves the well-being of the world equally. And the one of the the features of what it means to live in our world is that it's not in our control. We've reflected on this in some different ways. And one of the results of that is that we are quite often, it seems, certainly not unusually, it's not unusual for us to be impacted in ways that we find difficult. And the way we handle that, the way we deal with that, what happens in us and to us as a result of that, really has a lot to do with the the way in which we get bound and equally the way in which we can free our heart. There's a whole realm of experience for most of us that can begin early in life can occur at times and places throughout our lives where we're exposed to to harm, to pain, to violence, even in tangible or more subtle forms. And it has an impact on us, it affects us, and I guess this probably isn't news to any of you. I'm not expecting it to be particularly surprising. But it's useful to stop and just reflect on what happens to our hearts in a world where it's not possible to avoid being hurt, being harmed, sometimes in ways that seem deliberate or at least insensitive to the impact, by actions that seem deliberately harmful or at least insensitive to the impact they may have. I think it raises a real question for most of us, you know. How do I respond to this? What do I do here? So, what we can notice, I think, for most of us, is that there's a degree of fear as an initial response in this kind of situation or in recalling such situations, anticipating such situations as a a vulnerable human being, as someone who's subject to the potential for harm, for pain. We can easily start to look at life as somehow a situation in which we need to avoid being impacted. We need to avoid. And the, the way we can experience that sense of wish to avoid being impacted is often in the form of anxiety or fear. the movement that we have away from to give ourselves distance or space from experience that we've talked about and that we've seen, I imagine, clearly enough in our meditation and maybe more simple or immediate ways and yet it can be a a very strong theme or thread in our lives and certainly is in our culture as a, a very primary orientation that's expressed in many ways. And this this movement away from can sometimes be important to ask ourselves how much of our life 
How much of your life has been a movement away from what you fear, what we fear? How much of our energy goes into attempting to avoid that which may be difficult, scary, threatening or harmful? And if we're honest, I think probably most of us, certainly I, would include quite a bit of my life has involved that at times. And I imagine it's the same for you. And what we've perhaps also noticed is that moving away from the thing we're afraid of doesn't necessarily make us feel safe. One of the features of Dharma practice is we start to see that when we act on a particular attitude or view or perception, so acting to avoid that which we fear, although we might become removed or get away from that particular thing, by the action, by the reinforcing of the attitude of fear that says, get me away from that which is difficult, we inevitably find ourselves encountering something else that we need to get away from. And we can find our life becoming run or dominated by the urge to get away from, to escape, to remove ourselves from contact with that which is difficult, painful, scary or threatening in some way. Of course, there's times when it's really necessary and appropriate to, uh, to take care of our well-being, to protect ourselves, to move away from something which is harmful. If we're standing on the road and there's a car travelling down the road towards us, we could go, hmm, fear, fear arising, yeah. I can note it in my body, it feels like this tense sort of feeling in my stomach. <laughs> but of course, intelligence would suggest, get off the road. Yeah? So we see that there's a difference there. Now... When I was uh, a teenager, I was with some friends in a field, basically playing what we would call then silly buggers. Um, we, we wouldn't have said that, but on looking and reflection, what well, we had, I think, two cars and three motorbikes between about eight of us. And so the guys in the cars and with the motorbikes were driving at all the ones on foot who were jumping out of their way. It was kind of fun, it seemed to be at the time. We were all rugby players. It was, you know, and, and sort of, you know, sort of felt like kind of, you know, good, good practice, really. Um, and on one occasion this guy was coming towards me on a motorbike and he wasn't going too fast and so I stepped to one side to avoid him at the same moment as he swerved that way to avoid me (laughs) bang and I flew through the air Um, I've still got some scars on my elbow to show for it and I was reasonably proud at the time that I made a good dent in the motorbike wasn't any serious harm to either of us fortunately but whenever a motorbike, when I hear the sound of a motorbike, my whole body goes into fear, terror, like I'm going to die here or get hurt. I might be a long way from the road. And so I have to stop and check just a moment, am I on the road when I hear the sound of a motorbike? Of course, I wasn't on a road then, which is probably part of the problem. It was a field. But nonetheless, mostly there isn't a motorbike going to be there unless you're actually standing on a road. But whenever it comes, my whole system goes, ah! And I have to breathe and go, okay, yeah, this is a moment to feel my belly because I'm not in harm's way. And yet the experience is is quite shocking. It's quite painful every time. Even sometimes I can hear one on the television and my body responds. Less likely. But it can happen if it's suddenly, if it arises quickly. 
And so this movement, this contraction, we need to bring awareness to what's going on, to see what's actually helpful here when fear arises, when that response arises. Learning to attend to the experience in the present, so important. It's one of the elements of the training of what we're doing here, is learning to meet experience in the present. Because the way fear arises is always something that's in the present. It never happens anywhere else. But it seems to be about, and it, if it gets a hold of us, leads us to a sense of being drawn into the future as to what will happen to me. Now that's different from the need to respond to an immediate danger, like a car coming towards me. Because that's quite present. If it's coming towards me, get out of the way. But so much of what happens is we get sort of stuck in a pattern where we're constantly looking for the incoming danger. And we're imagining what's going to happen if and when in the future. And with fear, what we need to understand is that it's here and that it's now. And to meet it in the body, in the present. To feel what it's like, to notice it's uncomfortable. But to see that it's just that. It has no power over us. It's only when we believe the stories that we generate about what's going to happen if and when and what will I do then. And it's kind of interesting to reflect on the, uh, the, the quote that's attributed to Mark Twain who once observed, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But it's like we can be so afraid of something that hasn't happened. I don't know if anyone's contemplated whether that noise is a bee or a fly or a wasp or a hornet. (laughs) I'm not sure it bears contemplating, but I know that if I think it's a fly, just a noise. But if it's a hornet, scary. It's that anticipation. Of pain is such a strong thing for us. And what tends to happen is we can notice a certain tightening happening in the present. I don't know if anyone noticed it when the uh, the buzzing was around earlier in the day or this evening. If it gets a little too close, it's like I want to know what that is because it might be dangerous, and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But many times we uh, anticipate hornets when it's really just flies. They're mildly irritating, perhaps, but they're not actually dangerous. Of course, often we might feel a little bit irritated by something, and if it continues, we start to actually feel a bit more strongly. We can actually get quite angry. And anger tends to arise when we can't move away from the thing that we fear. And then it's really the movement to push away. When we can't get away, we move to push away. And this is, you know, quite well known as a phenomena. I think most of us recognise it. We can relate it to the very sort of primary fight and flight responses of sort of psychological survival wiring that we all have. And it's kind of interesting to notice what happens in us when that sense of something's impacting or threatening to impact me and I can't seem to protect or ensure that I won't be impacted, what happens in that process? Or we've been impacted, what happens in that process? When we can't avoid what we feel threatened by, we easily become angry 
when we've been impacted in a way that's painful, where something we or someone we care for or ourselves has been harmed. Anger is often the response. And it can come with a sense that, you know, it's not it shouldn't be this way. This person that hurt me, they're bad, or life isn't fair, or you know, something's wrong. We have a very strong sense of blame. And it's sort of like trying to put pressure on others or ourselves or the world that it must be not harmful to me. It must not impact me. That can't be allowed. That has to be stopped. And again, it's really important here to recognize that there's a a need and an important place for being able to actively, where one is subject to harm, so far as one can protect oneself. That's fine. That's necessary. Sometimes we need to step back. Sometimes we need to say no to somebody. Or step up and stand up in the world and say no to something that's going on. But that's very different that happen, than what happens when the, that reaction is primarily just happening internally. When we're not engaged, there's not something actual. It's more either remembered or anticipated. Because what tends to happen is we contract. And a number of people have spoken about this over the days in different ways. Encountering the sense of the contraction of the heart and the body. And the way we harden or we rigidify, we create a sense of armouring, energetic armouring. When we become con- in contact, or when we become aware of, when we're in contact with that, I think it's really clear as we become sensitive, as we start to tune in to our hearts and our bodies and our lives, that there's something profoundly painful and limiting about that kind of hardened, defended, protected rigidity, or protective rigidity, that it doesn't really serve our lives. It doesn't really serve our well-being. And it's a, it's a reaction, it's a, it's a pattern that we need to learn to open up in order to regain a, a fuller sense of contact with our heart and with our life and with others through that sensitivity of heart that is lost when it hardens and gained, regained when it opens. Sometimes it really seems as if it's important for us to hold on to our anger and our blame and our judgment. As if this is the only thing that's protecting us from being hurt again or ensuring that we won't become a victim again. And it doesn't really seem that it works that way. Often in that place of contraction, we're much more likely to get hurt again because we're actually not able to respond We're not really in touch so fully with what's going on. We're disconnected. And that, of course, in itself is painful. So what does it mean for us to understand that this pattern, this reaction of defendedness, sort of hardening, rigidity, really doesn't serve our well-being? There's a beautiful story of an uh, interview that I read about, um, I think it was in America, with, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama was being interviewed about the, the situation in, in Tibet. 
And uh, the interviewer was saying to him, you know, Your Holiness, I don't understand how you're so cheerful and how you, you, you spend so much time sort of joking and laughing and how you always seem so kindly and compassionate towards the Chinese government who, who've done such terrible things to you and your people. And, you know, the interview recorded His Holiness responding. He said, you know, they've taken my country. They've destroyed my monasteries. They've imprisoned my people and tortured my monks and my nuns. They've exiled me. They've taken from me everything they could. Should I let them take my heart and mind as well? I think it's really interesting and really important to reflect, to contemplate on what we actually lose if we give ourselves in or give ourselves up to and identify with the habit pattern and the force of anger. It's not to say that it doesn't arise, and I'm sure for His Holiness he must experience it at times. Of course he would. No doubt about that. But that one understands that this is not where we want to make our home. This is not what we want to give further power or authority to in our life. And so we engage in practices such as the development of loving-kindness. Bringing forth that sense of kindliness, of friendliness, starting with ourselves and those we feel more easily a sense of warmth and kindliness towards. But the vision of the practice is to ultimately include all beings, even those we find difficult, scary, threatening, or we feel we may even have legitimate reason to reject or push away. One of the teachings of the Buddha that is often quoted and much loved um, phrase or refrain from the Dhammapada, one of the collections of his teachings and short verses, it, it goes, and there's a number of different translations of it, but in essence what it says is, hatred never ceases by hatred but by non-hatred or love, alone. This is the ancient and eternal law. And so what we can see is that if we're interested in coming to some healing, to some resolution, we have to be willing to question our investment in the pattern of anger, of hatred, of rejection. And to do so, I think it's important to distinguish and to recognize the appropriate aspect of it, which is the strong protective quality that it expresses. And this is probably what we all, or hopefully we can recognize the element of it in which anger, if we're, particularly if we're feeling threatened or fearful, the tendency might be to be frozen. It's one of the effects of fear is that we freeze. And the rising of the energy of anger has the effect of breaking through that fear. It's often why anger is generated by people before going into battle. Because it it breaks through the fear. It allows one to act. And that's actually important. One needs the capacity for action when faced with danger, with harm, with threat. Whether it's through someone's intentional harming or whether just through a circumstance that's threatening to us.
And so actually being in contact with the energy, we see there's something very strong about it, something very clear about anger. Often when we're angry, we really know what's right and what's wrong. And that's part of it. It gives a sense of strength in the face of otherwise the, the vulnerability of a reality in which we're impacted or potentially going to be affected, hurt, harmed. And so that element, it's actually important to separate out from the way in which we very quickly go into justifying a sense of anger in response as hurting or harming another. Where we move from just a kind of a protective or defensive response to actually wanting to hurt the other, to punish them, to harm them. And we can see this directed at times to others. We can often experience it directed internally by ourselves against ourselves. Somehow angry with ourselves, wishing to hurt, to harm, to punish ourselves. Not really wishing, of course, not in our heart of hearts we don't wish that. But somehow imagining that that's the way we protect ourselves. And yet it doesn't really protect us. So understanding there's a real danger here. There's a real danger here. And the, it's, the understanding is illustrated in another story um, from, from the Tibetan community of a, of a monk who made the long and difficult journey over the Himalaya to escape from occupied Tibet to Dharamasala in northern India. And uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there and seeks to meet all escaped um, refugees from Tibet who've made the journey, survived the journey through the cold mountains and the and the army guards that would uh, shoot them if they were able to see them and catch them. And he he asked this this elderly monk who just made the incredibly hard journey over. He said, "Tell me, good sir, in your journey, were you ever in danger?" And the old monk looked at him with wise eyes and said, "It was hard. It was a difficult journey." But you know, I was really only in danger when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government and the army. Some, some remarkable wisdom there, remarkable understanding to know that the real danger is the closing of the heart and the making of another being somehow the legitimate subject for our rejection, our hatred, our anger. So there's a way in which we're asked in this to separate out the beings from their actions. Beings can do some tragically harmful, foolish, crazy, and we could say really bad things. Human beings do things that cause so much harm at times. It was something that I struggled with so much in my early years as a teenager, trying to understand how can human beings do what they do? Don't they see how much harm some of what's going on is causing? And so if we look at this, what's really going on? If we understand that our attempt to protect ourselves, in fact imprisons our heart, locks our heart within an apparently defensive but ultimately limiting and profoundly painful sense of contraction and tightness, that in the end is no protection at all. Because it doesn't protect us from being hurt. It doesn't at all. 
So seeing and beginning to reflect for ourselves on how does it come to be that harm is caused by human beings or others, other beings. What's going on? And we can never know what goes on for another person. We can only know what goes on for ourselves. We can ask them and they might tell us, but we never really know. So what goes on for us? What goes on for us? The process of allowing, supporting, inviting our hearts to open is, among other things, a process of healing in which we begin to make make peace with, come to terms with the reality of life that acknowledges sometimes it hurts, sometimes pain is caused to us, not just randomly, sometimes it seems even intentional. But to really start to ask self, what's going on here? What's going on? And really what's going on is that we act out of blindness and fear and our own pain and suffering. If we look carefully, this is what we'll see. Fear, grief, rage. At times we can all be carried away by these and do things we later regret. I've had cause and time in my life to really stop and think about some things I did. Sometimes that I didn't mean to hurt someone, but by simply not being really aware that I might impact them, they did. And occasionally, with some degree of wish, that cause harm. Not really fully seen, but if I'm honest with myself, at some point that has actually been there at times in my life. And it's kind of hard to stop and say, hmm, yeah, you too, me too. Not just those really bad people out there who end up on the front pages of newspapers or in charge of governments and armies, but actually me too, me too. And there can be some appropriate and I think really important sense of remorse or sorrow for the harm one has caused in the world. As we begin to separate out the action from the actor, to not blame or judge ourselves because at times we have done things that have caused harm. And we all have. I mean, maybe someone out there, one of you out there hasn't. Actually, I know a good joke about that. I'm not sure it's kosher. Um, it's probably not. <laughs> but I've just remembered, so it's hard to resist. Um, I don't mean any disrespect to other traditions because uh, I have a lot of respect for them. But there's a, there's a story. Oh, I'm surprised I'm going to tell this. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> You know the story about the uh, the stoning at the. Uh, maybe I shouldn't tell this. <laughs> um, no, no, it's, it's okay. The, the, Jesus comes a, 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 upon a, a woman who's about to be stoned, and the famous thing: "Let they who are without sin cast the first stone." Beautiful teaching, beautiful teaching. And the joke version of it, this. Um, sort of elderly woman walks up to the person and drops a big stone on the head and he says, gee mum, sometimes you really piss me off. (laughs) Now, maybe there is someone who really has never harmed somebody else. Though if that story was an actual real one, then of course in that moment, the very idea that I'm someone who's never harmed anyone that actually is harmful. That leads to causing harm. 
so much harm is caused in the belief that we aren't causing harm. We're protecting someone else or preventing it. In fact, most of the most horrific human atrocities have been carried out in the name of getting rid of what is bad or harmful. Really, the people believe that, who have acted in those ways. And how do we hold that? How do we handle that? Because it seems like we really should judge, reject, condemn, attack, destroy, wherever that appears in life. But again, if one stops and really asks oneself, really genuinely asks oneself, have I too done anything like this in my life? And the answer is probably going to be yes. It's probably going to be, yeah. And in a certain way, it's a matter of scale, simply between the small things we might have done and the large things that armies, that corporations, that... You know, more powerful entities or individuals have done. So, for me, what's been really important to contemplate and to see for myself is that when I have done things that have harmed other people, or myself, actually, thinking more with others, when I have done things that have harmed other people, when I was mean to my little sister, and I was sometimes. I mean, she was annoying me, but <laughs> I was a lot bigger than her. I know. And I just feel that. I think, ah, oh, that's really tough. Did I? And I'm sorry for that. But if I look and see, I was really upset myself. I was in pain or frustrated or annoyed and had no way to handle it. When I've done things in life that have caused harm, it's actually a desperate attempt to escape my own pain. And in my blindness of need, I'll take something that someone else maybe needed more. Or I'll push someone away to stop them irritating me. In words, probably not physically these days, but just somehow, and that might hurt them. And to really just let that in. It's not easy. But it's really important. Because letting that in and just seeing how we ourselves act in ways that cause harm, born out of our own pain, our own fear, our own limited capacity to hold the difficult experience of our own life, leads to becoming part of the process in which, sadly and sometimes tragically, it gets perpetuated. We can't handle it. And it ends up getting discharged out. And we've also, as being, maybe at times we've acted in those ways, we've also at times been subject to that from others. Even sometimes those close to us who haven't been able to handle their own pain and in some way they've acted in ways that have hurt us. And for me, I really understand this as a symptom of blindness as a symptom of really not understanding what's here and what's happening. And it really brings up, or for me it evokes, the importance of reflecting on forgiveness, on turning towards what does forgiveness mean for ourselves, forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, forgiving the world and life for being as it is. 
So there's a, a little story or a scenario that I, I, when talking with this about this with a friend once, came to me as a way of recognising what's going on that I find helpful. And I'd just like to share it with you. So you can just imagine the scenario as I describe it, as if it was something occurring for you. Excuse me. So imagine just going for a walk one late afternoon, quite pleasant in the woods. And as you're walking amongst the trees, and sort of dappled sunlight coming through, you see a puppy. It's a small creature. And having a you know an interest, a fondness for puppies, little creature, you reach out to stroke it, and it bites your hand. Just imagine your response, and you reach to stroke this little puppy. It bites your hand. It's painful. It hurts. Maybe it's bleeding. And the sense is, the response is, "You bad dog! I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to teach you not to." Or something like that. We might think in terms of yelling. We might not even think. We might just yell. <laughs> we might even think in terms of. I'll, I'll teach you not to do that, for your own good. Something like that. Does anyone resonate with that response as a possibility? So imagine we have that response. We've been bitten by this puppy. And then as we go to yell or possibly even hit it, we see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with teeth and jaws that grab small creatures in the woods sometimes that are set by people, human beings. And what's their resp- what happens to your response there? From one moment it feels like this creature has attacked me, it's trying to hurt me, doesn't like me, to this creature's in pain. It's afraid. It's scared. It's desperately trying to get some help to get out of this painful predicament and it's actually bitten the person who could have helped it. And in that moment... The anger, the judgment, bad dog, and all that just disappears, doesn't it? It's like, oh, poor thing. Possibly some of that concern, or, or in that, they might, you know, the wish maybe to you know, rescue the dog from the trap. Maybe have a word to the person who put it there, if we can find out who that is. Huh? But seeing that the puppy was in pain changes the nature of how we feel about it having hurt us. I think it's, that would be universal. I think that would be universal for anyone. So, kind of maybe a little bit humbled by the experience when it goes on. And then imagine another scenario, rather similar, but we've long since forgotten about the first adventure. Um, walking in the woods. It's autumn this time. So the leaves have fallen. There's a bit more sunlight coming through the trees. And we're walking along and we see a puppy, and we like puppies, as we do. So we reach out to stroke it and it bites our hand. Now on this occasion, as we look and see what's happening, we realise that the puppy's legs are buried shoulder deep in leaves. We can't see its legs or its feet. What would it take for us to understand that its foot was in a trap? even though we couldn't see it. What understanding would reveal that to us? And for myself, the understanding is the recognition that it's not of the nature 
of puppies to want to attack or bite or hurt humans or anyone else, actually, unless they're in pain or in fear or maybe hungry. But it's a reaction to their own pain. What would it be to know that the nature of the being is not that violence and aggression, but that that comes out of its own suffering? That doesn't mean we might not still take care to protect ourselves, to not get bitten if we could help it, to help and to help it if we can. When it's clear to us the suffering in ourselves or someone else that leads to the action, it's easier to forgive. But when we don't see the suffering, it's easy then to judge and blame ourselves, particularly. So we can't create the conditions in life that ensure we will never be impacted, hurt, or even attacked. We can learn to meet with love and with an open heart, which might have a fierce protective quality to it at times, to say no. But that in its action expressed in that form, we understand we're saying no to the harmful action. We're not rejecting, condemning, or attacking the person, the being, through whom the action has come. Understanding that it is their suffering and having no wish to perpetuate the cycle of suffering that when it's not understood simply repeats and recycles again and again. So what is it to have for ourselves the courage to to face sometimes the reactivity, the anger, the hostility of others. Equally at times the reactivity, the anger, the hostility we might experience within ourselves. To stay steady in the face of that and to turn towards that with love, with care. The spirit of Non-violent strength, something that touches me in the ways it's expressed in the world. And I'm in a way kind of fortunate. And my parentage and history is pretty complicated, which isn't necessarily fortunate. But some of the people in my family have had remarkable lives. When I was first travelling in India, I met my grandmother for the first time. She's Bengali from Calcutta, and uh, she had been one of the young women sitting in rows in front of the British Army at the time of the independence, the non-violent independence movement against the, the British Raj and the armies of the uh, empire. And the, the strength of the willingness to say, no, we won't fight, but nor will we move away from the threats and the violence and at times the, the killing that took place there. She's a, a remarkable woman. And when I, when I first arrived at the, the little um, place in which she lives and uh, knocked on the door. Just before I knocked, there was a sign hanging outside. And it said, and very sweetly, Hail friend, we ask not 
who thou art. If friend, we greet thee hand and heart. If stranger, such no longer be. If foe, our love will conquer ye. Or thee. And very, almost way too sweet and saccharine, you know. Mm. And something really beautiful in that. That sense of the interest to meet whatever comes. If something friendly, how lovely. If something unknown, hmm, I'm interested. If something threatening, okay, I trust the power of the heart of love to meet this. So we're invited. We're invited in the spirit of loving kindness, in the spirit of a greatness of heart, to cherish all beings, to open our heart to all beings. And there's a, a phrase in the Metta Sutta where the, the Buddha's speaking about the practice of loving kindness, where he says, you know, as a mother would protect with her life her child, her only child, so too, with a boundless heart, could one cherish all beings. The sense of, wow. That sense of really to cherish all beings. All beings that were babies. Once. That somehow in their journey, some have got pretty confused. And have struggled. But nonetheless, come from that same place of vulnerability and innocence. What is it to open our hearts to all these beings? There can be some remarkable stories of courage and determination. And again, the sort of in my own family story, I'm still kind of amazed by the fact that I got to be because it could have very easily not happened in the previous generations and my on my father's side my uh, family were Jewish and living in Romania in the time of the uh, the Holocaust and the uh, my my parents were sent on a train to a lab- my grandparents were put on a train to a labor camp and uh, my father was a very small baby just I think 18 months or less old. No, maybe it was 18 months. Maybe it was two years, actually. i do the math. And at one point, I'm not quite sure how, my grandmother managed to escape from the train. And uh, she did so by... There was a a point in which they were let out and herded into a certain area while another train was coming. And while they were there, there was an open latrine. And she jumped in with my father on her shoulders and she held him up while she was there neck deep for four or five hours until everyone had gone and there's this this part of me thinks wow how could you I mean holding a you know 18 or two month old child above your shoulders when she was probably quite weak from hunger and the the difficulties that have been going on for quite some time already I'm just amazed. And of course there are many stories in the world of immense courage. This is, you know, kind of sort of my story, but it happened before I was anywhere near turning up. 
And one just thinks, wow, human beings, amazing. You know, for all that, of course, some horror goes on, equally amazing stories of great-heartedness shown in so many ways. There's a story I was also very touched to hear about some years ago of a woman who attended a trial of a young man aged about 14. And that young man had killed her son in a gangland shooting. But her son wasn't in a gang. He was just a young man on the street. And the The boy on trial had been trying to join a gang, trying to get in. And he was told as a basically requirement he had to kill someone just to prove he was sufficiently tough and cool. And so he'd just randomly chosen this person who was her son. He was found guilty and sentenced to a long period in a youth offender institution. And after the sentence was passed, the the mother of his victim looked at him and said, I'm going to kill you with a steely-eyed gaze and then walked out. And he was taken to prison. And after a little while, the mother of his victim wrote him a letter to see how you're doing. And she started sending him the occasional gift and writing more regularly. And after a little while, she said she'd like to come and visit and would that be okay? She got to hear his story about the desperate violence of his early years and his family and how he took to the streets to survive and how the only way he could survive was to join a gang. And he had to. And there was no way to join the gang except to do what the gang members told him. And she heard that story and over the years she got to know him well. And that the time came, quite a long time after, when he was due to be released and she said, you know, have you got somewhere to go? And he says, no, I don't know anyone, I have nothing. She said to him, you know, I have an empty room in my house. I'd like you to come and live with me if you'd like to. And in the relationship that developed at some point, she said to him, you know what I said, do you remember what I said to you at the end of the trial? And he says, yeah. She said, I meant it. I did not want that in you which could kill my son without knowing him. I did not want that to survive. And you know, I think I've killed that hatred in you. I think it's no longer in you. And I'd like to adopt you. Would you be my son? It's a true story. I find it remarkable. The wisdom of that woman the heart of that woman, to see so clearly the difference between the action which was horrific, the murdering of her child, and the scared little boy who had done it, who needed not more hatred, not more punishment, not rejection, but needed to be heard, needed to be held, needed to be loved. Now sometimes it's the place of hurt, of pain, of fear in ourselves that needs that before we can consider or contemplate extending that to someone else who may have hurt or harmed us. 
but to understand that in a vision of our opening and awakening heart, we are really asked to include all. All beings. No matter what they may have done. When we understand the real nature of what it means to be a human being, the vulnerability, the tenderness of life, then we can start to naturally feel a sense of compassion and care and to really wish to extend that sense of kindness, of love to all beings. How is this possible, we might ask? It can seem so far away from what seems real for us at times, understandably. I'm not suggesting that there's somehow some condition we have to instantly arrive at in which we're suddenly able to open our hearts to all beings or to someone who's harmed us. But beginning by opening our heart to the place in ourself which can't open. Because that's the same place. That's the same place. The process of healing, of bringing kindness to those places that have closed... In the end, they all have the capacity to open again. And what makes that possible is starting to see, to understand that that closing is a a movement of disconnection, of separating ourselves from. And it flies in the face of the truth and the reality of our profound and unshakable interconnectedness that we are not separate from each other. So profoundly are we affected by and do we affect all beings and all of life. At one level and at the the deepest level, it makes no sense. There's no truth in the idea that we are separate from another, from each other, from all beings. And although in our mind it may be quite a journey for us to understand that, From the point of view of the heart, it can become quite clear. We all begin and we all continue to care. Caring is always here. It's always part of what's going on. No thing that happens, happens without caring. No action, no response. But that caring is not necessarily aligned with or supported by clarity and wisdom and understanding. And so we narrowly define the sense of what we care for, to me or to mine or to even just part of me and some parts of me I don't care for. And in that separation, in that cutting off, the deepest harm, the deepest pain is created. And the the nature of love in its essence is that It doesn't see anything other. It doesn't see separation. The nature of love is that it sees what it sees as not other than itself. When we feel love, what we actually experience directly is the connectedness. It's the very felt texture of life, in fact. When the heart is open, we know it. It can be so sweet. When the heart feels closed, the loss of it is so painful, so grievous to us. 
But to understand and to know all things as not other is to begin to really discover the profound healing of the heart, the opening of the heart. That we are all of the same essential nature. We are all part of life, inseparable from the totality and the vastness in all its infinite expressions. I'd just like to read a piece from uh, Black Elk, who was a holy man of the Ogala Sioux, a Native American people. And he described a, a profound experience that occurred to him once. He said, in his book, uh, Black Elk Speaks, he said, <clears throat> And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all. And round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell. And I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit. And the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that had made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. The word healing wholeness and holy all have common root, a common root in language. When we stop believing in the appearance of separation, we start to question the way in which that arises and is constructed in our habitual way of thinking and separating and distancing. There is a wholeness that is revealed, an unbrokenness of heart that has space for the pain, the sorrow, the loss and the grief that doesn't nonetheless break the heart but actually opens it. And in the seeing of that wholeness and that healing, there is a holiness. There is something profound, something remarkable and beautiful. And its natural response to life is to care for it.
So may we all in our lives and in our practice come to know freedom from fear and anger. Come to understand the forgiveness born of wisdom and seeing what's really here. And may we all abide in the the greatness of heart that is the very nature of life itself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.